Okay, uh, good morning and welcome to another church history presentation. Today we're going to talk about the holiness movement and the Pentecostal movement. And pictured on the screen, I have um, on the left, uh, well, your left, uh, is a picture of William Seymour and his wife, Jenny, a uh, major leader in the Pentecostal movement. We'll be talking about William Seymour a lot. And uh, the other picture is a recent photo um, taken at a uh, Christian college that is, is broadly a part of the Pente uh, Pentecostal denomination. And you notice there are uh, lighter skinned people and darker skinned people in that picture worshiping together. A recent emphasis within uh, some Pentecostal circles today, thankfully, is a push towards racial reconciliation and uh, reaching where different communities, white communities and black communities of faith are reaching out to each other and uh, you know, coming together in meaningful ways, which is a very good thing. All right, so we're gonna review some, some uh, things from the holiness movement. We have talked about this before. It is a Christian movement that emerged in the United States mainly within 19th century Methodism and to a lesser extent other traditions such as the Quakers, the Anabaptists, and the Restorationists. And broadly speaking, Restorationists were uh, people who felt we need to restore the church to the way it was as we see it described in the Book of Acts and in the New Testament uh, broadly. The movement is historically distinguished by its emphasis on the doctrine of a second work of grace uh, after conversion, generally called entire sanctification or Christian perfection, and by the belief that the Christian life should be free of sin. And for the holiness folks, the term perfection signifies completeness of Christian character it's freedom from all sin and possession of all the graces of the spirit, complete in kind. A number of evangelical Christian denominations, parachurch organizations and movements emphasize holiness beliefs as central doctrine. Following the American Civil War, many holiness Christians, most of them Methodists, became nostalgic for the excitement of camp meeting revivalism during the Second Great Awakening. The first distinct holiness camp meeting convened at Vineland, New Jersey in 1867 under the leadership of John Swinnell Inscamp, John A. Wood, Alfred Cookman, and other Methodist ministers. Uh, the Vineland uh, gathering attracted as many as 10,000 people. At the close of the encampment, the ministers formed the National Camp Meeting Association for the Promotion of Holiness and agreed to conduct a similar gathering the next year. And this organization was commonly known as the National Holiness Association. Later, it was called the Christian Holiness Association, Christian Holiness Partnership, 
You know, so what, what we see with a lot of these revivals is you have this big successful revival and everybody's like, this was awesome, let's do it again. And so they try to form some type of group that is going to ensure continuity of these activities. And sometimes it's successful and sometimes not. The holiness movement spread throughout the U.S. and continued to grow in the 1860s. And by the 1880s, holiness was the most powerful doctrinal movement in America and seemed to be carrying away all opposition, both within the Methodist Church and was quickly spreading throughout many other denominations. And spiritual manifestations were common at these camp meetings, with people falling out under the power of the Holy Spirit and many speaking in tongues, and women were active in preaching and ministering. And these pictures are probably tough to see. They're old black and white photos, um, you know, mid, mid to late uh, 19th century uh, photographs uh, taken at camp meetings. Um, on the t in the top photo on the left, um, you see campgrounds out in the woods, but they've, you know, built some rough benches and there's some sort of uh, pavilion that they've constructed um, that uh, probably is also made of wood. <laughs> and uh, uh, this was very typical of the, of the places where they would organize these camp meetings. Um, obviously, if you're going to be out in the woods for a week or more, you've got to, you know, if you're going to be out there to stay, and, and, you know, if you think back, uh, and this was how it was for many of these folks, they are thinking back to the children of Israel wandering through the wilderness, the Feast of Booths. We are coming out. We are coming out from the cities and the places where we normally live our lives, where we conduct business and, and all the usual things of everyday life. We are retreating to a place. We are coming out to a place in the wilderness where we can seek the Lord and we can, you know, live together as a Christian community for a period of time and focus on seeking the Lord. Um, actually, in the Dayton area, there is a campgrounds. Uh, it's not as rough. It's a little more built out than what you see in this photograph up in Ludlow Falls. There is a Christian campground. It's pretty big. Greg and I uh, went there once, and they have actually small wooden buildings, little cabins built. So, and today it's quite comfortable. A lot of those cabins, <laughs> you know, have a little bit of heat or some air conditioning, a window air conditioner. Um, but they're, they're just little, you know, they're just little cabins. It, it, there are some creature comforts, but it's basic, it's not the kind of cabin you would go to for a vacation. It's not that large and it's not, it doesn't have kitchen facilities but they have rows and rows of these little cabins. They have a large uh, building that has a full kitchen, and so people take, are taking their meals together. You know, it's, it's not, this is not a vacation. This is a camp meeting, and you are with your brothers and sisters seeking the Lord, uh, but you do have some place to sleep besides a tent. Now, you know, in the early days, people were, you know, in tents overnight. 
On the bottom picture uh, on the left, you see a, a group of people, all, you know, men, women, children, lots and lots of people at these meetings. On the right, you see, um, <clears throat> and this is, you know, uh, an old picture, so it's kind of hard to see, three women. Uh, one woman looks to be sitting at a small organ, two women with Bibles at a, at a you know, small makeshift pulpit. Um, I don't know how well you can see this, but they're probably under a tent. Based on what's in the background, it looks like they're under a tent. So in these early days, everything was happening under tents. Uh, but women were very active in the movement, um, preaching and leading uh, meetings. Unfortunately, there was a sudden change in the 1880s. An opposition developed from some Methodist leaders who opposed the doctrine. Why do you think that might be? People wandering off in the wilderness, having church out in the wilderness, what's that doing to our churches? You know, we, we want to kind of consolidate, you know, this movement in the church. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a loose, unstructured movement. So some of the church leaders were not that happy that this was going out. They pushed out some of the more radical people. Uh, divisions kept increasing, and then uh, it became sort of a thing of, are we going to pursue holiness, the holiness movement, as we see it emerging, or are we going to stay loyal to our churches? And obviously, these, these gatherings would have included not just Methodists, would have included a lot of other people from other churches or maybe people who had no church. Um, you know, it's essentially emerging into a type of parachurch structure. Those who stayed in the Methodist church mainly lost the emphasis of the doctrine, although it is still in the Methodist discipline, but those who left formed different holiness denominations. And we're going to talk about an important holiness denomination here shortly. But first, I need to talk about a similar movement that was occurring in Great Britain. Um, so at the same time that this is going on in the United States, the Keswick Holiness Revival is occurring in Great Britain. In the 1870s, it swept through the nation, and sometimes it was called the Higher Life Movement, and uh, William Boardman was an important figure in the Keswick Movement, and he wrote a book called The Higher Life. And so Higher Life Conferences were held at Broadlands and Oxford in 1874, and in Brighton and Keswick in 1875. The Keswick Convention soon became the British headquarters for this movement. Uh, there was also the Faith Mission in Scotland. Scotland had had its revivals, and it continued to have revivals and a, a movement of this, this holiness uh, uh, emphasis. Now, the Keswick Holiness Movement in Great Britain is important for America because influences from, from what was going on there went back to the United States. In 1874, Albert Benjamin Simpson read Boardman's Higher Christian Life and felt the need for such a life himself. Simpson is important because he went on to found the Christian and Missionary Alliance. How many of you have heard of the Christian and Missionary Alliance? Yeah, quite a few. Yep. Uh, and uh, Simpson set up basically two organizations. The Christian Alliance that focused on 
Work in America, Missions in America, and the Evangelical Missionary Alliance, which focused on overseas missions, and then the two were merged in 1897 to form the CNMA. Central beliefs for these churches include evangelical theology, the importance of the Bible as God's holy word, the Trinity, worship, salvation, sanctification, charity, evangelism, and end-time eschatology, or a premillennial emphasis. The higher life movement that focused on entire sanctification, the second blessing, the second touch, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and so forth. The Christological fourfold gospel. Jesus Christ is Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and soon coming King. And I can remember in my own experience uh, in you know becoming a Christian in the early 70s, hearing many messages uh, that focused on this fourfold gospel, Jesus Christ, Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and the phrase that was I often heard was soon coming king. Sanctification is sometimes described as the deeper Christian life, and it's exemplified by the writings of A.W. Tozer. And of course, we're all familiar with Tozer. Belief in progressive sanctification and rejection of suppressionism or cessationism. In other words, we are not going to say that the gifts of the Spirit that we see in operation in the book of Acts and as mentioned in 1 Corinthians and that we know were taking place in the early church, um, we're not going to suppress or claim that those have ceased with the age of the apostles. We are not going to have that type of emphasis. Uh, We are going to focus on the works of the Holy Spirit. And the Alliance also emphasizes missionary work and believes that the fulfillment of the Great Commission is the reason it exists. And CNMA are very active in foreign missions. The CMA differs from the Wesleyan holiness movement in that the CMA does not see entire sanctification as cleansing one from original sin, whereas adherents of the Wesleyan holiness movement affirm this teaching of John Wesley. During the start of the 20th century, A.B. Simpson became closely involved with the growing Pentecostal movement. It became common for Pentecostal pastors and missionaries to receive their training at the Missionary Training Institute that Simpson founded. Consequently, Simpson and the Alliance had a great influence on Pentecostalism, in particular the Assemblies of God and the International Church of the Four Square Gospel. And I'm sure most of us have heard of these two denominations. Uh, Of course, they exist today. Uh, This influence included the evangelical emphasis, alliance doctrine, Simpson's hymns and books, and the use of the term gospel tabernacle, which led to many Pentecostal churches being known as full gospel tabernacles. Now, eventually, there did develop a severe division within the alliance over issues surrounding Pentecostalism, such as speaking in tongues and certain worship styles. Now, some of you might be surprised to learn that a large church here in the Dayton area, and I 
probably almost all of you are familiar with it. Maybe you've attended services there. Uh, Fairhaven Church in, uh, with the main church in Centerville, Ohio, and they have satellite churches in the Dayton area, is a CMA church. And you can find that on their website. They don't try to hide it. Um, but it's not a prominent part of you know, their marketing, so to speak. Perhaps they feel that um, you know, advertising the fact that it's part of their denomination might not be meaningful for a lot of people today. There might be, a, in the general public, there might be a lot of people who've never heard of Christian and Missionary Alliance. Um, however, they are a part of that denomination. And interestingly, uh, my research, I discovered that the American headquarters for uh, the CMA organization is actually in the Columbus, Ohio area. Um, so CMA has a strong presence in the state of Ohio. By 1912, the CMA became a formal denomination, and by 1919, after Simpson's death, it distanced itself from Pentecostalism, rejecting the premise that speaking in tongues is a necessary indicator of being filled with the Holy Spirit and instead focused on the deeper Christian life. And today, the CMA has about 22,000 churches worldwide with 6.2 million members in 88 countries, and it has 90 theological seminaries. So it continues to thrive today. All right, here we go, John Luke. <laughs> John Luke has been waiting patiently for literally years. <laughs> for what we are about to uh, dig into. So we're going to start into talking about Charles Parham, William Seymour, and the Azusa Street Revival, the beginnings of the Pentecostal movement in the United States. Charles Parham, uh, born June 4th, 1873, died June 29th, 1929, was an American preacher and evangelist. Parham's mother, uh, stepmother rather, was a devout Methodist, and Parham married a devout Quaker woman. He began preaching at the age of 15 and became a supply pastor for the Methodists. Although he was never ordained, he never had a lot of formal theological training, uh, which was probably why the Methodists didn't ordain him. Parham left the Methodist Church in 1895 because he disagreed with its hierarchy. He complained that Methodist preachers were not left to preach by direct inspiration. Rejecting denominations, he established his own itinerant evangel evangelistic ministry, which preached the ideas of the holy holiness movement throughout Kansas. So I guess technically you could say at this point Parham is kind of his own lone ranger Christian going out to teach what he believes is, is true and right. Uh, so uh, he had a son. Um, his son was born in September of 1897, and not long afterwards, both he and his son fell ill. And of course, at that time, you know, inf infant mortality was very high uh, for many reasons. But fortunately, both Parham and his son recovered and Parham believed this was uh, directly due to divine intervention. And at that point, Parham said, forget medical help, forget doctors. I'm committed to teaching 
divine healing and prayer for the sick. In 1898, Parham moved his headquarters to Topeka, Kansas, where he operated a mission and an office. And in Topeka, he established the Bethel Healing Home and published the Apostolic Faith Magazine. And Parham operated on a faith basis. He didn't take offerings during his services. And he simply prayed to God to provide for the ministry. You know, he wasn't going to ask for money. He was going to trust that the people to whom he ministered would give according to their faith and that God would supply all their needs. Parham took a sabbatical in 1900 and visited other ministries, some of which turned out to be cults, such as Frank Sanford's ministry in Maine. When Parham came home from his sabbatical, he found that those who had been tasked with maintaining the ministry had simply taken it over, and he left to start a new work. <laughs> yeah. Always a risk you take when you take a sabbatical. <laughs> Parham started Bethel Bible College at Topeka in October 1900. Now, the school was modeled on Frank Sanford's Holy Ghost and Us Bible School, and Parham continued to operate on a faith base, charging no tuition. Parham proclaimed that the only textbook for the school would be the Bible. I want to say parenthetically, we're not going to really get into this Frank Sanford and what he was doing in the state of Maine. He had, he had some, some good things, but I, he, he basically was running a, a cult of personality. Everything was centered around him, and he was very controlling. His theology I, was, appears to be Orthodox Christian in the, in the small o, Orthodox sense. He wasn't you know, he wasn't a oneness Pentecostal, which we'll talk about in future um, talks, um, but it was just the way he ran things. He was extremely controlling. Um, but Parham borrowed some of his ideas. Um, you know, basically, this, the school is going to be run by the Holy Spirit, and our textbook is the Bible. We're not going to rely on the things of man like other textbooks written by human beings, uh, you know, that wouldn't be helpful. We're just going to trust the Lord for all of it. Parham also said that the only teacher for this school would be the Holy Spirit. Now, Parham had heard of at least one individual in Sanford's group that had spoken in tongues and had reprinted the incident in his paper. Um, you, you know, because Parham was uh, publishing this apostolic faith newspaper. Parham had also come to the conclusion that there was more to a full baptism than others acknowledged at the time. By the end of 1900, Parham had led his students at Bethel Bible School through his understanding that there had to be a further experience with God, but had not specifically pointed them to speaking in tongues. So in other words, people have been baptized, people have been saved in the evangelical sense. They've been converted. But there's yet another experience that we have not experienced, but it's out there and we want to move towards it. At the end of the year, the students had several days of prayer and worship. 
This is at, at Parham's Bethel College. They held a New Year's Eve watch night service at Bethel on December 31st, 1900. The next evening, on January 1st of 1901, they also held a worship service, and it was that evening that Agnes Osmond felt impressed to ask to be prayed for, to receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Immediately after being prayed for, she began to speak in what the stu students refer to as in tongues, speaking in what was believed to be a known language, but that language was not known to any of the people hearing her. She didn't know it, and the people hearing her did not know it. As exciting as this event was, people in Topeka generally ridiculed the Bible school, calling it the Tower of Babel, and many of Parham's former students called him a fake. And this is something we're going to see time and again, of course, with the Pentecostals. Um, they are going to be much maligned by uh, many people in the larger you know, Christian uh, world, and they're, of course, going to be maligned by many in the general population. They're going to appear to be odd, to appear to be fakes, and, and all of it. It's, you know, it's going to attract a lot of negative attention. Now, by April 1901, Parham's ministry had simply dissolved. He lost his support. Uh, but it was not until 1903 his fortunes improved when he preached on Christ's healing power at El Dorado Springs, Missouri, a popular health resort. And Mary Arthur, who was the wife of a prominent citizen of Galena, Kansas, claimed she had been healed under Parham's ministry. And she and her husband invited Parham to preach his message in Galena, which he did through the winter of 1903 to 1904 in a warehouse seating hundreds. What do you want to bet there wasn't much heat? Uh, you, <laughs> you'd have to be really, you know, really sincere to sit it out in a warehouse in Kansas in the winter. <laughs> in January, the Joplin, Missouri News Herald reported that 1,000 had been healed and 800 had claimed conversion. In the small mining towns of southwest Missouri and southeastern Kansas, Parham developed a strong following that would form the backbone of his movement for the rest of his life. And I want to insert here, um, it's interesting to note that this part of the United States still has a very strong evangelical and Pentecostal uh, presence um, there in Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma, in these areas, uh, there are Bible schools, there are college, Christian colleges, all types of organizations, and uh, many Pentecostals put down their roots in this part of the United States, and a lot of organizations still exist in, in those areas that came out of these early days. Out of the Galena meetings, Parham gathered a group of young co-workers who would travel from town to town in bands proclaiming the apostolic faith. Now, interestingly, unlike other preachers with a holiness-oriented message, Parham encouraged his followers to dress stylishly so as to show the attractiveness of the Christian life. <laughs> Many holiness groups emphasize plain 
simple clothing. You don't want to be ostentatious or showy. You know, many holiness groups went on to say that women should not wear jewelry. You know, women needed to dress very conservatively and modestly. But this, this organization took a different approach. The first frame church built specifically as a Pentecostal assembly was constructed in Keelville, Kansas in 1904. Other apostolic faith assemblies, uh, Parhamd did not want to call these groups churches, uh, were begun in the Galena area. Parham's movement soon spread throughout Texas, Kansas, and Oklahoma. Parham's ministry included establishing a Bible school in Houston, Texas around 1906. And several black Americans were influenced heavily by Parham's ministry there, including William J. Seymour. William Joseph Seymour was the second of eight children born to emancipated slaves Simon and Phyllis Salabar Seymour in Centerville, Louisiana. He was baptized as a child at the Church of the Assumption in Franklin, a Catholic parish. So he was baptized as a Catholic, but in 1884, when Seymour was 14 years old, his parents built a house close to a Baptist church, and it is believed that he might have attended services at this Baptist church. While serving in the Union Army during the Civil War, Seymour's father had contracted an illness from which he finally died in November 1891, so, at the age of 21, William then became the primary provider for his family, growing subsistence crops with very limited income from other sources. The family was able to keep their property, but lived at the poverty level. And Seymour grew up during a period of heightened racism that likely led to his dis decision to move north, away from the persecution endured by southern blacks around the turn of the century. In 1895, Seymour moved to Indianapolis, where he attended the Simpson Chapel Methodist Episcopal Church, which was black, and possibly other black churches, and became a born-again Christian. And in Indianapolis, Seymour was introduced to the holiness movement through Daniel S. Warner's Evening Light Saints, a group whose distinctive beliefs included non-sectarianism, faith healing, foot washing, the imminent second coming of Christ, and separation from the world in actions, beliefs, and lifestyles, including not wearing jewelry or neckties. So again, that holiness emphasis on very plain clothing and dressing, and you should not be worldly in the activities that you uh, engage in. In the, in the summer of 1900, Seymour returned to Louisiana and worked briefly as a farmhand. In 1901, Seymour moved to Cincinnati where he worked as a waiter. It is believed that he attended God's Bible School and Training Home, a school founded by holiness preacher M.W. Knapp. Now at Knapp's school, blacks and whites studied together. Knapp taught premillennialism and also took seriously special revelation such as dreams and visions. But while in Cincinnati, Seymour contracted smallpox and was blinded in his left eye. 
and Seymour blamed his disability. Later, he would come to say it was a result of his reluctance to answer God's call to the ministry. Seymour moved to Houston in 1903. So he was, he was moving around a lot. During the winter of 1904 to 1905, he was directed by a special revelation to Jackson, Mississippi, to receive spiritual advice from a well-known colored clergyman. He probably met with Charles Price Jones and Charles Harrison Mason, founders of what would become the Church of God in Christ. And we'll talk more about the Church of God in Christ in future um, uh, talks. Between 1895 and 1905, Seymour also met other holiness leaders, including John Graham Lake and Charles F. Parham, who we just talked about, uh, leader of the apostolic faith movement in the Midwest. Through Parham, Seymour met Lucy Farrell, which I believe we've mentioned her, as she was active in the holiness movement. She had become a nanny to Parham's children. She was black. She was a leader in the black holiness movement. And through his connection with Lucy Farrow, uh, Seymour was, you know, starting to engage with Parham's group. Um, so in 1906, he, you know, he decides he's going to uh, start attending Parham's school. But uh, although Seymour attended Parham's school, um, because of the, t the Jim Crow laws in the South, which were in Texas, as well as other southern states, uh, technically, it was illegal for Parham to be there. All the students in Parham school were white. Seymour was black. And uh, you know, by law, he should not have even been in the building with them, in, at least in the same room. Jim Crow laws, uh, you know, it's basically this, you know, false, separate, but equal kind of idea. So, you know, there's separate uh, restaurants for black people and white people. Uh, there's separate, you know, at train stations, there's separate places at the train station for black people to wait for trains and white people to wait for trains. There are separate cars on trains for black people to sit in and separate from white people. This is, you know, it's total racial segregation. And in the South at this time, um, these laws were on the books. It wasn't just informal segregation occurring, it was, it was legal, it was by mandate. These laws were enacted in the late 19th and early 20th centuries by white Southern Democrat dominated state legislatures to disenfranchise and remove political and economic gains made by blacks during reconstruction after the Civil War. And what a lot of us don't realize today is that these laws were on the books until 1965, within my lifetime. Yeah, yeah. So of course, in practice, what these laws say is, we must have racial segregation everywhere in all public facilities in the states of the former Confederate States of America and in some others, and they really, they really took off in the 1870s. There was a big backlash after Reconstruction. White Southern Democrats, you know, just pushed back on everything that was happening in the South um, that they believed was being imposed on them by the federal government and by Northerners. 
and they instituted these Jim Crow laws and um, led to, you know, just huge problems in the South. Uh, really, you know, both whites and blacks were, of course, we see how negatively impacting this was for the black community, but it, it harmed the white community as well. It was, it was just really, really wrong. The slave era segregated churches of the 19th century continued this practice into the 20th. So the black churches that we had before the Civil War continued as black churches afterwards, predominantly. Um, you know, so far we've really only seen Church of God Anderson, Indiana, trying to take an emphasis of breaking down racial division. Uh, for William Seymour and other black Christians to worship and study in the same room with white Christians in Texas in the early 1900s was unthinkable, let alone for it actually to occur. Seymour and other early black Pentecostals found themselves literally on the fringes of the early Pentecostal movement. And Parham made Seymour not actually he was not actually allowed to sit in the classroom with the white students, but he could sit out in the hall and listen. You know, the door would be open and he could listen to the classes uh, that way. Uh, Parham and Seymour shared pulpits and street corners on several occasions during the early weeks of 1906, with Parham only permitting Seymour to preach to blacks. Now that seems pretty extreme. You're on a street corner in a city yeah, there's all kinds of people, you know, why not just preach to everyone? Uh, you know, Parham was basically a racist <laughs> when it came to, you know, blacks and whites. He just believed they had to be separate. Parham believed that the evidence or sign that a person is baptized in the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. But at this point, William Seymour had not yet spoken in tongues. Within a month of studying under Parham, Seymour received an invitation to pastor a holiness mission in Los Angeles founded by Julia Hutchins, who intended to become a, mission, a missionary rather, to Liberia. Although Parham believed Seymour unqualified because he had not yet been baptized in the Holy Spirit, Seymour went to Los Angeles anyway, and thankfully, yes, he did. <laughs> Moved on. <clears throat> The Pentecostal movement, not being a program designed by humans, drew in many different kinds of people and gave people opportunities for Christian ministry and leadership who might not otherwise have had that chance. Women, both black and white, found opportunities for ministry and leadership along with black men. Julia Hutchins holds a special place in the history of the Azusa Street Revival for she was the black pastor who invited William Seymour to come from Houston to St. Louis to serve as pastor of the Santa Fe Street Holiness Mission. This is in Los Angeles. With Parham's support, Seymour journeyed to California where he preached the new Pentecostal doctrine using Acts 2-4 as his text. <laughs> but Hutchins rejected Seymour's teaching on tongues and padlocked the door to him and his message not getting off to a good start. Well, Seymour went to the home of another black Christian, Richard Asbury, at 214 Bonnie Bray Street, again in Los Angeles, where on April 9th, after a month of intense prayer and fasting, 
Seymour and several others spoke in tongues. Word spread quickly about the strange events on Bonnie Bray Street and drew so much attention that Seymour was forced to preach on the front porch to crowds gathered in the streets. Seymour searched Los Angeles for a suitable building. What he found was an old abandoned AME church on Azusa Street that had been used recently as a, a warehouse and stable for horses. Although it was a shambles, Seymour and his group cleaned it, set up board plank seats, and made a pulpit out of old shoebox shipping crates. And there is an early picture of, uh, they called it the Ap Apostolic Faith Gospel Mission. You can see that's painted on the side of the building. Services began in mid-April 1906 in the church, which was named the Apostolic Faith Mission, but would also perhaps become more well-known as the Azusa Street Mission. In September, Seymour began publishing a newspaper titled The Apostolic Faith with worldwide circulation. The revival quickly grew. Crowds of up to 1,500 packed into the small mission for the better part of three years. During the peak of the revival, meetings ran from mid-morning to midnight, seven days a week. The revival was characterized by interracial harmony and participation. Um, I would say generally, uh, many blacks found California to be a less hostile place generally to obtain education and jobs. Um, and here we see, you know, for uh, Christians in California, there are more opportunities, especially for black Christians. Blacks and whites worshiped together at the same altar against the normal segregation of the day. And Seymour claimed that the Holy Spirit was bringing people together across all social lines and boundaries to the revival. He not only rejected the existing racial barriers in favor of unity in Christ, but he also rejected the then almost universal barriers to women in any form of church leadership. Latinos soon began attending as well after a Mexican-American worker received the Holy Spirit baptism on April 13, 1906. Seymour was clearly the leader of the Azusa revival in the beginning. He delegated authority to 12 overseers, ordained ministers, and commissioned missionaries. With the notable exception of Parham, who was uncomfortable with the mixing of races at Azusa, many other prominent holiness preachers like G.B. Cashwell and C.H. Mason made the pilgrimage to Los Angeles to preach and pray alongside Seymour. Among other leaders who would become prominent in the Pentecostal movement was William H. Durham. Sorry. Leaders of the Azusa Street Revival are shown here in a photograph that was probably taken at some point between 1906 to 1908. Men, women, blacks, and whites. Everybody's included. Pretty awesome. You can see William Seymour is sitting um, uh, in, in the, he's right next to the older, appears to be an older white man with a beard. Uh, that's Seymour sitting there. And 
standing uh, kind of to the left of the man with the white beard is his wife, Jenny. <clears throat> William Durham, born June 10, 1873, died July 7, 1912, was the founder of the North Avenue Full Gospel Mission, a storefront church in Chicago. After traveling to Azusa Street and being baptized in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues, Durham returned to Chicago to minister to others who would go on to found many Pentecostal denominations, including Assemblies of God and Church of the Four Square Gospel. And actually, uh, the Assemblies of God comes out of Durham's work. Um, and we will, of course, talk more about Assemblies of God. We'll talk also about the Church of the Four Square Gospel, uh, Pentecostal denominations that are with us to this day. Um, so this concludes um, what I have um, uh, for today. There's some uh, notes on some of the sources I used. Um, I guess we have time for a few questions, if anybody has any questions. Maybe not. Um, the, you know, sometimes with online, online sources, you know, as opposed to actual books, um, stuff kind of comes and goes on the internet, but I did find this Women of Azusa Street, and it had, it had a lot of information about, you know, these early days. Um, but again, the focus of that book is on the women, I, you know, I, I could not really find, I, I don't know, maybe somebody has written a comprehensive history of the movement. If so, I haven't found it. Um, I haven't, on the other hand, I haven't had tons of time to look for it, but there might be something out there, a really good comprehensive history of the whole movement. If it's there, I haven't found it yet. So... Maybe that could be a great homework assignment. You know, if you ever find yourself bored, you have nothing to do. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> Saturday afternoon, you're just sitting around the house. Okay, I'll give you an assignment. Go look for a comprehensive history of the, of the uh, Pentecostal movement starting with Azusa Street. Daniel. Um, I mean, probably yes. I, you know, here's the thing. These movements, we're not talking about churches now. We're not talking about organization. We're talking about disorganization. We're talking about people coming and going, exchanging ideas. People are moving around. People are, you know, going to a revival meeting over here and then a revival meeting over there. And... Um, you know, this isn't this isn't something that's easily contained, or um, and and you know you can kind of begin to see why some people would be very critical of this kind of movement. Mm -hmm. It's so loose and it's so unstructured. Who's in charge? Well, yeah, it's totally grassroots. It's totally from the bottom the up. Organization 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Is he still? Is Jack Hayford still alive? I don't know. <laughs> you had a question, John. Yeah. So you mentioned being on Azusa Street, like in California, during the whole you say segregation period. Right. Was it California considered a free state, though? Right. There were Jim Crow laws and informal segregation, even in free what had been free states at the time of the Civil War. Um, you know, again, it, it's a different. It's a different society back then than today. And so, um, you know, what's going on in one part of the country, like another part of the country, may not have caught up with it, so to speak. Um, and despite Jim Crow, you know, even, even in the South, even, you know, in a place like Louisiana, the fact that Seymour's parents could own land, they, did, they were able to come up with enough money to buy land and own it, and fortunately not lose it or have it taken away from them. Uh, so, you know, it's not as black and white, if I can say that. It's not, we can't pigeon, you know, my, in my mind, I like to pigeonhole things. Okay, so you have, you know, if you live in the Jim Crow South, life is horrible for you if you're black. You can't own land. You can't vote, even though there are laws that say you can vote. You're discouraged from, yes, many, you know, all the, a lot of these things were true for many people, but not all. Um, some blacks made some gains in the South, and it's truly amazing that they were able to do so. Um, you know, uh, I just think the prevalence of racial segregation for so many decades, you know, even in places even in northern states that were nowhere near the, you know, the former Confederate states, it was entrenched in American society in so many places. And yet, sometimes people were able to break through those barriers, uh, whether they existed informally or formally as, as legal things. Some, some people just said, I, I don't care. I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. And if you're a Christian and God's called you to preach the gospel, there's no limitations on that. You know, Parham's idea that, you know, he should preach to whites and Seymour should preach to blacks, clearly unbiblical, clearly not a Christian idea. Um, but, you know, these cultural things have affected our Christianity, unfortunately. Last question. I have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It'll be exciting to see what God does at Asbury this time around. Yeah. And, of course, keep in mind, God can do a revival anywhere, anytime, with any group of people. You know, he's not restrained to save by many or by few. Amen.